This week on the Backtable Podcast. There's been a shortage of liquid ethanol availability at a lot of centers. Yes, there has. For you too. And so I had an exactly similar situation for someone with cystic disease. For cystic disease, we do want to do ethanol ablation as a, as a first line approach and sort of pairing chemical ablation with embolization. Great combination of events. And the, the ethanol is so quick and you, you get pretty much immediate understanding of how much of their bulk symptoms are due to those cystic cavities. And then that really helps you decide to do the embolization as well. So I love that approach, that combined approach. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. First, a brief message from our sponsor. Minimize vessel trauma, dissections, and the need for bailout stenting above or below the knee with a chocolate PTA balloon. The balloon's unique nitinol constraining structure creates pillows and grooves that provide a predictable, uniform, and atraumatic dilatation. Learn more about the product details and safety information at medtronic.com backslash peripheral. Now, back to the episode. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I'm joined today by Drs. Jawad Hussein and Alan Sog to talk about thyroid embolization. How's it going, guys? Thank you for having us. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for joining. You know, Alan, we've had you on here. We, we've learned a, a bit about your practice, you know, talking about pain and MSK interventions. And, and what else did you do on here? Well, I'm really excited today to talk about thyroid interventions. You know, I was very excited to know that Jawad is also pioneering in this space. And uh, let's get this word out throughout all of our community so that other doctors can also bring this to their patients. I'm with you, man. This is new to me for sure. Uh, Jawad, where are you working now? And uh, where does this, tell me a little bit about your practice. So I'm a um, multi-specialty radiology group, uh, one of five interventional radiologists. And as in m most private practice radiologists, I'm kind of a jack of all trades when it comes to IR. So sure. everything from FNAs to tips and everything in between, you know. Right on. So I'm going to start with you, man. You know, when did you start doing thyroid embolizations uh, and, and how did it first come about in your practice? So interestingly, it was actually born out of a need to find something to replace thyroid RFA. So a couple of years ago, I was approached by some of the endocrinologists saying, hey, we have these patients who have, you know, big nodules and they want them treated, but they really don't want surgery. So what do you know about thyroid RFA? And at the time, I knew nothing. So I did some research and, you know, looked over at Dr. Park at UVA, just, uh, you know, 45 minutes down the road. Right. I talked to him about it, did some did some research on the uh, the Korean literature, uh, went to some courses and started doing th thyroid RFA. Well, it turns out that the capital equipment required for that was not approved in our health system. And the process to approve new equipment sometimes is an arduous, long process. So it was about right. at least a year where we were waiting for this generator to get approved. And I was like, man, these patients are lining up. We need an alternative to treat these people. So, you know, I started doing some research on my own, looking at the literature that's available on thyroid artery embolization, and then uh, it kind of took off from there and just exploded. Totally. Alan, what about at Duke? What was the impetus to start doing this? I love hearing that because it was so similar. You know, we, we knew that we were going to be growing a thyroid RFA program, but there were people coming in with retrosternal goiters who were not good surgical candidates. And we actually wrote a book chapter 
with our endocrine surgeons and endocrinologists. And it's now in a book regarding greater embolization as well as embolization for other purposes. And we developed a protocol with our endocrinologists about, you know, what are we going to do if people have palpitations afterwards? How are we going to manage thyroid hormone levels afterwards? So we didn't, there was not a protocol prior to that. The Yilmaz paper had not yet been published. And I think the biggest thing to convey is everything, for everyone listening to this, everything you need to perform a goiter embolization tomorrow is probably already on your shelf. And to Jawad's point, most places don't have a thyroid RFA generator, or they might have a nerve RF generator that doesn't generate enough power to create the ablation needed for a hypervascular nodule or a mm. large nodule. So it was initially born out of this need to treat patients who are not good surgical candidates with bulk symptoms. And so for those patients, uh, you know, the ones that both of you guys are treating, you know, why is there a role for embolization? You know, what are their treatment alternatives and you know, what are the deficits and what was already being offered that this procedure might seek to, to remedy? So I would say with, you know, with all interventional alternatives to surgical procedures, there's the you know, surgical risk that some of these patients can't endure because of their underlying medical yeah. conditions. Or in this case, the cosmetic issue ends up being, being, being a big thing because these patients necessarily want this scar across their neck and, and, you know, have to think about that. So that ends up being a big uh, issue for some of my patients that I see. Okay. I think, and just to just to echo that and add, you know, this is a titrable, targetable, repeatable, nerve sparing, generally parathyroid sparing, generally thyroid sparing outpatient procedure. And so for your patients who have had a prior hemi, prior hemithyroidectomy, maybe they only have one residual recurrent nerve. Maybe they are on chronic blood thinners or Coumadin and you don't want to hold that. You could do a transradial goiter embolization shrink that down, get some benefit for bulk symptoms. So it's for palliation purposes currently. Got it. I understand. So it sounds like, you know, when Jawad was starting, it, um, you know, was was first seeing patients with individual lesions that would have been targeted for um, an ablation. Is that right? Yeah. So it was big nodules. It wasn't necessarily one focal nodule that we would typically consider an RFA candidate. It was okay. a patient that had a multinodular uh, lobe or maybe the right lobe was humongous and, and we would have, you know, emboli we would have uh, RSA'd that lobe potentially or a couple of nodules there to cause a decrease in that those bulk symptoms. Uh, so it was primarily there, but then it morphed from just goiter embolization to Graves patients with uncontrolled yeah. Graves who were not controlled on their, their medication. So for, you know, both of you, I'm hoping you can tell me how, you know, you went from this getting introduced, you know, as an idea, a way to treat these patients. How did you go from there to actually starting to treat these patients? So we have a tumor board with our surgeons and endocrinologists. So for anyone who's listening to this, who's interested in starting this program, my first advice is to see where are these patients already being seen? Because that's going to be at most academic centers, these, these patients tend to be seen by either ENT or endocrine surgery and almost always by endocrinology. And they usually have a tumor board that meets weekly. And so if you can be present there, that's going to be your first step. But I will say, it's not like we showed up, brought a microcatheter, and then people started sending patients to us. Sure. You know, it was a gradual process over the course of a year and a half. You know, we wrote a book chapter with many references. This was, this was something that everyone contributed to. So that was really an important way to introduce the concept. And then when you're talking to the patients, these are patients who have bulk symptoms, supine dyspnea. So they lay down, they can't 
take, they can't breathe as easily when they're laying down, dysphagia, aspiration risk, and they're on blood thinners and they're not surgical candidates right. and they're not candidates for either repeat radioactive iodine or they're just not avid. So it's, it's a bit easier to have that conversation. And I think for people starting to offer this, it's a bit easier to have that conversation when you're really the last choice between the patient getting a tracheostomy and a percutaneous gastrostomy or not and having some improved quality of life. So that, that, made, that made the initial conversations easier. Jawad, was your experience similar when she started this? Yeah. I mean, like how many times, you know, in IR are we the last option, but yet we're the best option and they come to <laughs> us last, but they realize, you know what, this is a much better option than any of the other options we had. Why don't we try this first? Right. And so, yeah, exactly like Alan said, these patients come because they're not surgical candidates. Endocrinologists are frustrated because they have nothing to offer these patients. And so, you know, they've been coming by the truckloads now because we already see these patients for FNAs. These nodules are, you know, TR3, TR4 nodules. Uh, and so we're FNAing them and they go back and they're benign. And these endocrinologists are like, okay, what else do we have to offer? Because they don't want surgery and they're complaining and I have nothing to give them. So, you know, they'd love to hear about this. And it always starts as a, they'd love to hear about this option. And can you tell right. them more? And then when I start telling them and explaining how simple this is, how quick this procedure is and outpatient, minimal side effects. I mean, post-embolization syndrome, as we'll talk about later, is something we all deal with with other parts of the body. Sure. It's so minimal with thyroid embolization. It's, it's amazing. And so there's really no trade-off like you have with uh, giant fibroids that you're embolizing. You know, the trade-off is the pain. And this, there's really not much of a trade-off. And so it becomes a no-brainer when you start pitching it to these patients. Mm -hmm. So one of the issues that, you know, we commonly see with interventional radiology is, you know, one, we're a small specialty and, and, and two, we're always doing something new, something new, something novel and, you know, new treatment alternatives. And, you know, with that, it can be hard to accumulate data to support what we do. And so I'm curious how that went with you guys. When you started this, was, was there much in the way of, of data supporting the procedure? And, and, you know, if, if not, you know, how did you make that pitch to the rest of your team? Like, we should be embolizing these. I'll let Alan start since he's at the academic medical center. He's got a lot more footing to uh, <laughs> solid footing. <laughs> well, I would say for anyone starting a practice anywhere, but especially in academic centers, the easiest way for you to get engagement, the academic currency is publications. Sure. So if you have a team that you want to work with and you have time and patience, then you can bring people together with no patients yet and write a review article or a book chapter. Okay. And that was, this was all before the Yilmaz paper. And it's interesting. I talk about the Yilmaz paper. It was the series that's published in JVIR. But really, when that got published in JVIR, it, it grabbed a lot of attention because it, for the first time, brought something very relevant uh, that was updated from prior series where perhaps the same embolic technology, microcatheter technology, cone beam CT technology were not necessarily widely available. And I think that the the data, the lack of data becomes a little bit less important when it's a palliative case. Okay. And when the patient has no better options and you're presenting the the known risks and benefits as is. And so in those cases, the lack of data is a little bit less concerning, but not ideal, obviously. Sure. And we still provide informed consent accordingly, and we make group decisions. And so we, we move by consensus. But I'd also be very interested to learn how things are in the private practice domain as well. Yeah, so my currency is not, you know, papers and literature, right? My currency with these endocrinologists is what have you done for me lately? And so I do a lot of <laughs> adrenal vein sampling 
and, um, you know, other endocrine uh, procedures for them. And so they know, you know, I'm thoughtful and considerate when I'm doing that and I give them good data. And so they said, okay, well, you know, you, you seem to be someone who knows what they're talking about. Well, what can you offer in this space? And so, like you said, Yilmaz published, you know, before JVIR, he published in, I believe, a European journal. And so I used that uh, data that he, that group initially had and showed them, okay, there's a paucity of data out there, but it's pretty uh, encouraging. This is what the data is. And I think we can replicate these results. But again, I have no, I have nothing else to say experience wise, besides the fact that we do hundreds of transcatheter embolizations everywhere and we're using those same principles sure. and they're applying it into a different space. And I tell the patients exactly that too. This is a new novel procedure. There has been some literature that supports doing this, but again, these are the risks, these are the benefits. And, you know, often their question is, is my thyroid going to completely uh, melt away and I'm going to have to be on thyroid medications? And the answer is, well, no, if I don't treat all four of your thyroid arteries, the likelihood of that happening is very, very low. And the data supports that. And those are usually the main risks that they're worried about. You know, the risk of stroke and all these other things that I'm telling them about, they seem to like, you know, poo-poo that. And they're like, oh, I don't care about right. that. <laughs> it's, am I going to have a scar in my neck? No. And is my neck going to shrink? Sure. <laughs> let, let, let's go ahead, you know? Well, you know, it, it's it's also important to point out, you know, when you compare this to surgical options, it's not a minor surgery, especially for a large goiter uh, and, you know, one that goes into the mediastinum. And it's just not a simple operation. And as you pointed out, these aren't great surgical candidates a lot of the time. Retrosternal goiter, uh, Alan, you brought up as one of the indications. I had this patient who was going to have a thoracotomy, you know, and a sternotomy for retrosternal goiter. And I said, well, we could do this transcatheter embolization instead. And they talk about alternatives, right? Like crack your chest versus have a pinhole in your in your <laughs> wrist, right? So yeah, certainly. <laughs> so do you think that this is picking up enough steam that we can expect to see more in the literature, more data? you know, coming out or at this point, does it, does it really matter? Are we, we more focused kind of on the experience and, and the outcomes? I think we need kind of a revolution like GAE and PAE in terms of large right. series, at least, you know, Alan, me get together, a bunch of us get together. We publish this, a multi-center study, uh, you know, showing our retrospective data just to show the safety part of things. I think the efficacy is one thing, but the safety is another, especially when you venture into a new space of interventional radiology. And you're dealing with head and neck vasculature and all the sensitive areas around there. So I think mm -hmm. if we can prove the safety of that, then then you know the the benefits that you get are seem a lot larger when you have minimal downside. I think I agree, and and I think IR is going to be carrying most of the weight on this because compared to thyroid RFA, where you have endocrinology, endocrine surgery, ENT, other societies are also pushing. You know, still this is something that you know thyroid RFA is still trying to gain traction. Right. But I, I think I strongly believe that these are complementary technologies. And as an IR, we can offer both. And so these are, I do, I do not think that these are necessarily competitive technologies. And I think that they're both important in their own right. Well, it's also interesting, you know, to think about how you would put one of these studies together, particularly in terms of comparing therapies, because my guess is that for a lot of these patients you're treating, the alternative is nothing. I would imagine that some of these patients can't really they're not candidates for, for anything else uh, invasive. Is that correct? Do you get patients like that? Yes. So their aspiration risk and they end up going, they end up receiving a tracheostomy and a peg tube, essentially. So comparing what your practice looks like now to what it looked like when you first started offering this, how has it changed or evolved in the last couple of years? I know it hasn't been that long, but uh, you guys are both pretty busy. Yeah, so I'll say our algorithm has been a lot more streamlined now, and it's made it a little easier to see patients and get the pre-procedure workup and then the procedure. Okay. So 
you know, you learn things early on in instituting a new procedure or a new practice. And the things that I learned were getting a CTA after my consultation before committing to doing the procedure is, is key for me because the anatomy yeah. is so variable and the arteries that are hypertrophied are really the ones that I really want to go after. Doing some blind, quote unquote, before, you know, without getting a CTA and right. showing up at the neck with a catheter and shooting a subclavian arteriogram and saying, where's the thyroid artery? You know, it's so tiny. <laughs> Uh, it's not something you really want to be dealing with. So um, no. ours is, you know, consultation, talk about risks and benefits, get the CTA. And then if the arteries um, are a good conduit to do the embolization, then I end up booking the procedure. Um, and then we do always a two-week follow-up for uh, post-procedure uh, symptoms and make sure, you know, there's no complications. And then a two-month follow-up, either ultrasound or CT, depending on where the anatomy of the goiter is. What about you, Alan? How has your practice changed since you first started offering this? The biggest thing that changed, the first thing that changed was we, we started building a service in the middle of a pandemic, basically. <laughs> so all of our, I mean, the timing for both of us, the timing could not have been worse. You've got patients who you really want to ultrasound them. You really want to make sure that you're providing that in-person care. And then suddenly we can't see patients. And suddenly our access to rooms and our access to room time was limited because we were, you know, we were on lockdown. We were not doing elective cases for a long period of time. And so overcoming that really was a bit of a struggle. And I, and I think w where we are now on the other side of that is we have a joint clinic with our surgeons. So every patient at Duke who is coming for a thyroid RFA gets two visits on the same day. They get a visit from an IR talking about minimally invasive options and they get a visit from a surgeon talking about the surgical options. And then we convene and we, we make decisions jointly. And I think that that has, that has helped me better understand where the surgeons are coming from for their decision making and vice versa. And there are certainly patients who come to see me who don't have a surgical opinion, who don't have massive goiter. You know, these would not be good candidates for goiter embolization. You do the CTA, they don't have a large artery. It would be much easier to do an RFA, okay. but maybe they're a bit young. Maybe there are some factors where surgery may be a preferred option. I mean, surgery is still standard of care in the ATA guidelines. They haven't been update for, updated for several years, actually. Thyroid RFA is not even, doesn't have a role yet for benign disease okay. in the currently available thyroid uh, ATA guidelines. And that's as of the time of this recording. There are new guidelines on the way, but right now the guidelines that we have in front of us they don't include embolization. They don't include thyroid RFA. So for all those reasons, I would say the, the major thing that's changed for us is a joint clinic with our surgeons, which, you know, for people who are starting their own practice, it's not straightforward. There are a lot of logistics. You're trying sure. to bring together a lot of clinic logistics, your schedule, their schedule, you're planning in advance. But I do think that it, it, at least in an academic center where you have, it definitely makes, it definitely reassures the people that you're working with that you're not trying to institute a technology that's going to replace them. Yeah, absolutely. Jawad, have the, the surgeons gotten involved uh, on your end in your practice, or is it primarily you and the endocrinologists? It's almost like two different silos. So the endocrinologist is the, yeah. uh, the quarterback and basically bridges between the two of us. And so if okay. there's no surgical option, I, I always let them go first. As Alan said, they're standard of care. So I kind of let them see the patient first. And if they decide the patient doesn't want surgery or they're not a surgical candidate, then I'll happily offer my opinion. Got it. Um, Joy, you'd mentioned that when you started, you were first seeing patients who were going to be candidates for RFA, and then it gradually expanded to including 
patients with Graves' disease. I'm curious for both of you if, you know, you know, what are the indications for the procedure today? Like, you know, I don't know if that's changed at all um, or if it's, it's generally, you know, the same patient population. So the two most common indications that I see patients for and that I offer this procedure, both of these procedures is nodular goiter causing mass effect and, uh, you know, symptoms uh, of dysphagia, like Alan was saying, and uh, graves. So those are the two reasons I'll see these patients. Yeah, those are those are great indications. And I, and I think that broadly it's reduction of bulk symptoms, not amenable to RFA. I would still prefer RFA where you can do RFA. For a cervical goiter, I think most IRs would are going to be very comfortable accessing an, a large inferior thyroid artery off the subclavian. You can do that with many catheters from the wrist even or from the groin. But I think that for cervical dominant, for high up dominant goiter, which is going to be superior thyroid artery dominant, you're going to be making a choice. Do I want to do a carotid catheterization and all the things that come along with that? So for the average IR, that may be a decision to make. Or do I, would I rather treat this easily accessible goiter with thyroid RFA? So for us, it's predominantly been retrosternal ITA dominant disease causing bulk symptoms. And the everything that's accessible in the neck, we would prefer to do thyroid RFA. But they're not, there are many decisions that would go into preferring one versus the other. But definitely the stuff that's behind the sternum, you can only reach with embolization. So knowing how to do both is going to be valuable for IRs. Understood. Yeah, it sounds like I need to have you guys come back and, and do another one of these on thyroid RFA. And Mike, I should say Tim Huber has a great back table episode on thyroid RFA as well, by the way. Clearly, I need to listen to that. <laughs> so do you ever do thyroid embolization either before or in conjunction with other therapies, you know, either to kind of debulk a gland for surgery or, you know, preoperative embo like you might for a kidney? Or is it really just one therapy or the other? We've definitely talked about it. You know, you're reducing heat sink. You are perhaps making it easier to ablate. However, at most centers, the ablation is going to be a cash pay procedure. Okay. And so the practicality of it is that, and, and the other thing to mention is there's not tremendous overlap in these patient populations, at least in our practice pattern. If they have retrosternal ITA dominant disease, that's not an area that you would ablate. And if it's STA dominant and reachable with RFA, that's going to be much easier to treat with an RFA. So um, there isn't much uh, overlap yet. However, it's definitely worth considering. I'd be in interested in what Jawad thinks as well. Well, like you said, you, you hit the nail on the head with saying that it's a, often a cash pay insurance doesn't cover, you know, thyroid RFA. And so when you're dealing with Medicare population, managed care patients, that thyroid embolization code is going to be a lot easier to get reimbursed and easier to, you know, get them in your clinic and treat them. Uh, despite the fact that I completely agree with you, if you can see, if you can reach a goyer and embolize and uh, ablate it, satisfactorily, then that treatment is going to result in a faster decrease in those bulk symptoms than will waiting for the embolization to take hold, right? So I totally agree with you. It's unfortunately, uh, you know, Medicare and the logistics around insurance have not caught up with those common sense indications. And I would say, you know, for a place that's maybe starting these that doesn't have a generator, maybe that factors into your decision. Additionally, people who have only one recurrent nerve, you know, you might avoid a thermal option in those cases. You might push the limits on the embo in those cases where a patient has only one recurrent nerve. So it's definitely, it's still a personalized decision for each case. There's a lot to consider, but the finance, financial aspect of it right now is, is a major decision point, like you said. 
Absolutely. Let's move on and talk about how you guys are doing the procedure, beginning with the workup. And Jawad, when you're you're doing the workup in these patients, I mean, presumably they've had imaging, but do you have to get any, you know, labs out of the ordinary that you, you know, wouldn't get for, you know, let's say like a PAE patient? The nice thing is they've already been kind of worked up very extensively by their endocrinologist. Often they're followed for years on methimazole. And so they have a kind of baseline level of TSH and T4 that they're being tracked. And so they will usually have labs within a few months before the embolization and be on a stable dose of medications. So the main thing is making sure that they stop their blood thinners if that's appropriate and uh, you know they don't have any active infection, otherwise their labs. But I don't obtain routine labs the day of the procedure. They're usually young, otherwise healthy patients. So it's, sure. it's a good population to work with. And I gather that you get a CTA beforehand, which, you know, obviously seems wise considering the, the anatomy. And, uh, you know, we do a lot of head and neck interventions where I am and, and you know, you never know what you're going to get with an arch or, you know, some of these really tortuous origins. Um, what about you, Alan? What does your workup include? Yeah, that's it's, it's quite similar in that we want to know the TSH. We want to know the TSH before we do the case, because you're going to watch that suppress after you destroy some tissue, you get some thyrocyte lysis. You get some hormone release. You're going to be suppressing that TSH. And then you want to know where the baseline is so you can come back to it. And if they are hyper or hypothyroid, that's typically managed currently by by our endocrinology friends. I think it's probably going to be that way for a while. I think it's going to be some time before IRs are necessarily comfortable managing chronic endocrine disorders like hyper and hypothyroidism. So I think that that's why it's important to maybe team up with them from the outset. The CTA is so, that arch thing that you mentioned, so crucial. I mean, yeah. that's that's actually, we we actually have seen patients on the much older side of the spectrum and you get a lot of arch uh, shapes that you don't want to deal with. You can no. come in from the right radial actually and form an upside down Simmons and treat both sides. You're still parking something across the arch or you can go unilaterally from the right and left uh, radials respectively. You can do that in separate sessions. But I, I do like the radial option as much as possible, especially since we're treating predominantly ITA dominant disease. There's a rare artery called the thyroidia ima. You might show, you might see that on an on a CTA. I haven't yet had a case where that's been the case, but mm-hmm. you know that's that's another reason to get the CTA. I've only seen it in diagrams, never in real life. Right, same here. Uh, I'll use the <laughs> CTA to actually guide whether I'm going to do it femoral or radial, because as Alan said, yeah. if you have uh, uh, unilateral ITA dominant disease, it's much easier to go radial and, and use that one. Although I've had to have retrosternal goiters that are treated, uh, that are fed by the internal mammary. And so I've done a you know, unilateral radial approach and saw a parasitized goiter coming from the internal mammary. So you never know what you're going to get with these, you know, enlarged goiters that are going funny places. So, you know, when you're, you're seeing these patients in clinic, you, you've done your workup and, and you guys have decided to move forward with an embolization, how do you set expectations with the patient? What do you tell them in, in terms of, you know, expected outcomes, you know, what your goal is and, and how long that's going to take? Well, let's start with a patient, for example, who's had radioactive iodine. Okay. So they've already had radiation in that mediastinum. Most surgeons are not going to be interested in operating on a patient, especially if they've had a prior hemi where they've had a nerve injury now you're talking about tons of scar from the radiotherapy from prior surgeries. So the first thing is, let's talk about alternatives. And if there are no alternatives, then let's talk about what happens if this doesn't get treated. If you're currently having aspiration episodes, then this is, this is going into, into the direction where you're going to need airway protection one way or the other. And for some patients, we've had conversations where 
if the patient's laying supine and not able to breathe, that's not going to be safe for our procedure either. So they should go ahead and get their airway stabilized. And then we're doing palliative debulking in an effort to get them off of the trach and off of the peg. So we do talk about, and, and, I'll, and I'll pause right after this part to hear what Jawad thinks as well, but we do talk about the fact that this is a gradual shrinkage. So compared yeah. to surgery where you are, uh, you're getting immediate, what's great about surgery is you get immediate bulk relief. And if there is any cancer in that space, by the way, the pathologist is going to tell you. Right. And we haven't talked yet about cancer, but I think it's it's worth mentioning that the, the topic comes up. Everyone's local practice pattern, they're going to have to determine how are you going to establish your threshold for safety with regards to the possibility of cancer. Okay. And for us, it's a review of all the imaging and a multidisciplinary tumor board. With thyroid RFA, for example, the 2017 Korean guidelines have advocated for two biopsies before you do an RFA of a targeted tumor, a targeted nodule, pardon me. So in this particular case, it's, it's, there's no, there are no rules such as that. Most goiters have areas where that might be suspicious and biopsied. However, it's more of a conversation with our referrers. Jawad, how, how do you handle the possibility of, of cancer when you're talking to the patients? So when we're dealing with RFA, I followed the Korean guidelines of two negative uh, FNAs before proceeding with RFA and our endocrinologists are on board with that. So they already get that before they refer the patient to us. Uh, when it comes to um, embolization, you're right. You know, you can't, just like with the fibroid embolization, you can't, you know, confirm or or promise to the patient that there's no sarcoma in there, right? There's no adenocarcinoma in there. And so um, it's informed consent. It's telling them the limitations of your procedure versus the benefits of surgery and them still not wanting surgery and then saying, okay, well, this is what I can offer you. And absolutely, it's going to be a gradual decrease. It's not going to be an immediate decrease. And do I know there's cancer in there? No. But if you've had a negative FNA, we have to believe the results. Otherwise, if we choose not to, you know, if we choose to suspend our disbelief, then what are we even doing here trusting medicine in the first place, right? So you have to have a little bit of faith and then understand that this nodule got big and this thyroid got big over time. It's certainly not going to get small overnight. Uh, we're depriving of its blood supply and it's going to take months to get smaller. Um, but, you know, certainly it will get smaller. It'll just take time. And setting those appropriate expectations, fine, I find that patients are still very appreciative that you're willing to do something. Again, as Alan said, we're the last resort here and they have no real other option. And so some improvement is better than none. But yeah, appropriate, you definitely have to set those appropriate expectations. And and I'd be interested as well. You know, we we have the conversation just like for RFA. If it's a big volume, this may need more than one round of treatment. So we may do this and then we may follow up. Your symptoms may improve slightly, but we may come back once, twice. And I think that's one of the reasons that RFA and embolization are so complementary. It's really a local versus a local regional approach Okay. Yeah. for larger volume. I have disease. this one patient who has you know, very large goiter and also multiple cystic spaces within there. And so I chose to do embolization first, shrink it down. I said, we're going to come back after a few months ultrasound this again, and then aspirate those cystic spaces and treat it with ethanol ablation. And then we're going to get kind of a two-stage approach. So yeah, absolutely. If it's certainly something very large like that, they may need multiple rounds of treatment. I love that you mentioned that, especially hyper recently. I don't know if this has happened locally in Virginia, but there's been a shortage of liquid ethanol availability at a lot of centers. Yes, there has. For you too. And so I had an exactly similar situation for someone with cystic disease. For cystic disease, we do want to do ethanol uh, ablation as a, as a first-line approach and sort of pairing chemical ablation with embolization, great combination of events. And the, the ethanol is so quick, 
And you you get pretty much immediate understanding of how much of their bulk symptoms are due to those cystic cavities. And then that really helps you decide to to do the embolization as well. So I love that approach, that combined approach. So when you're, you know, you've got your CTA uh, and and you're mapping out how to do this, I mean, from a technical standpoint, what is your goal of the procedure? Like how many arteries do you typically treat? And is it does it vary from one patient to the next? So I'll use the CTA to inform that decision. If it's a unilateral predominant goiter and both the ITA and STA are enlarged on that side, then I'll do two uh, on that side. Whereas if it crosses to the isthmus as well and there's some shared supply from the contralateral side, I'll usually do three. Three is the most I'll do, but I won't do four um, arteries for you know reasons of one, not wanting to have ischemia or over embolization. Sure. And the goal is, you know, deep cannulation with a microcatheter to prevent reflux. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, safety is first and foremost. This is not necessarily life-threatening. It's quality of life limiting, certainly, and we're, you know, palliating symptoms, but definitely don't want to be causing any non-target embolization. So I will go above and beyond to to make sure that that's, you know, one of my goals of this procedure. And and ours is similar in that we're trying to reach three to five beat stasis in the target artery. Okay. Using 300 to 500 micron embospheres is, is what we prefer locally, we don't add a vasodilator or antibiotic into the embolic routinely. And just as Jawad mentioned, you know, we want to leave at least one quadrant untreated for the parathyroid sparing portion. Okay. But if you're seeing someone with a hemi, if so with a hemithyroid, then treating just the ITA for an ITA dominant hemithyroid, for example, you can get good results with a single artery because they're not getting watershed from the other side. And you shouldn't treat both because you don't want to knock out all their parathyroid and their thyroid supply. What are you looking for on the angiogram once you're in the thyroid artery? Um, and is there anything that you see on the angio that might change your decision to treat? You know, I do. We do epistaxis, for example, and we see a lot of these anastomoses from, you know, the internal maxillary artery and things like that that, that can kind of make us stop and, and change what we're doing. I think this is a case where if you are, whether you're in an OBL, whether you're in an academic center or in private practice, you know, this is the case that you're going to want to put into your cone beam room because you're going to want to do a cone beam CTA and rule out anastomoses to aerodigestive structures and the cervical spinal cord. Okay. Those are the two things that you want. And then also, as you embolize, it's going to be important to periodically repeat after a small amount of embolic, if you if you notice that your flow is slowing down, then you, you're going to want to repeat your angio and repeat your CTA to make sure that new collaterals have not opened up that you could be embolizing as your embolic goes in gradually. Yeah, so similar, I was uh, doing a lot of cone beam CT in the beginning to try to understand the anatomy. I think uh, very similar to when we started doing prostate artery embolization to understand you know, what the blush on angio we're seeing and how is that correlating yeah. anatomically to the region we're going to, right? What does a rectal blush look like, et cetera? So in the same way, the ascending cervical off that thyrocervical trunk, that's an important branch to not, uh, to know where that's going, not to embolize, and then right. looking for those um, spinal cord collateral, certainly. After the first five, I stopped doing cone beam CT because I was comfortable um, with that blush of the thyroid and understanding the anatomy now and looking for where that ascending cervical branch is going to that uh, cervical musculature. So deep cannulation, and I'll say these arteries are some of the most tortuous arteries that I've ever worked with. And so I've, really? you know, switched to using a 2.0 microcatheter that tracks really well, you know, the Boston Scientific True Select uh, and a 014 right. wire. And I've taken pictures, single shot images of how these microcatheters look like, and they're contorted 
Like swan neck doesn't even give it like the appropriate description because there are two swan necks on top of each other. And that's just in one plane. If you look in the <laughs> in the lateral plane, it's going, you know, it's it's amazing uh, the turns that these arteries take. Uh, but it's actually, that's what makes it fun too, is because the skill and, yeah. uh, and you know, the enjoyment of doing these procedures is really, is really interesting. Yeah, we initially started with the 2-4 prograde. And, you know, just taking an example of an inferior thyroid artery selection, you know, not sometimes you'll be surprised how big the ostium is. So you'll be surprised how big the artery is. You know, th- there's a reason why for, for a long time, one of the physical exam findings of a goiter was you put your stethoscope on it and you hear a brewery. There's a tremendous amount of blood flow going through there, but we don't want to be occlusive at the ostium. And I've also switched to the True Select for that same trackability. I really love it. I love the the 155 length. And part of the reason that we that we use embospheres, really, I could say the same for any calibrated embolic compared to PVA, is because this is the last place where you want to have a clogged catheter. Totally. Um, and so we are typically diluting the particles to the same amount that we would for a genicular artery embolization and just injecting over a, a longer period of time patiently. And what's interesting is when we were initially creating our protocol, it was questioned, you know, there there is some uh, mention in the literature about patients becoming transiently hyperthyroid after iodine loads. You know, we, we considered, should we be giving these patients gadolinium mixed into our embolic or should we be doing it with iodine? So, so far, everyone's uh, that's used particles has been using with iodinated contrast. But if that consideration comes up, you know, in general, we tend to give IV decadron during the case. Dexamethasone prevents conversion or activation of T4 to T3. So that's one of the ways that you're going to stay safe with regards to reducing your risk of thyroid storm after this procedure. And we put patients on a medrol dose pack afterwards as well. What size particles are you using? So I was using 355 to 500 PVA initially based on the Yilmaz paper. And then I switched over mm-hmm. to Embospheres uh, for that exact same reason. I wanted a little more, I guess, you know, reliability with my embolic, making sure that I don't get stuck, make sure I don't get reflux. So now I use 400 micron Embospheres if I don't have the three to 500 in stock. Usually mm-hmm. I use that, but if that's not available, I use the 400 Embazine. Alan, what about you? Yes, we use, we don't have Embozine on the shelf. So we use the 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 embospheres in that same size range. Okay. So, you know, after you've done the embolization, the patient's going home the same day? Correct. We admitted our first patient. They were the healthiest patient. They were somehow admitted to the oncology floor due to the overflow. And so we went around on them that night and they were absolutely asymptomatic. They had a little bit of shoulder pain, (laughs) which is typical. It was a person who had a prior hemithyroidectomy wore a scarf in clinic. A lot of patients are very cosmetically aware of these yeah. goiters. It's a, it's very problematic for them. And this was our first patient. So we we didn't yet know right exactly how much pain they were going to have. We we gave Toradol. We we had them. We had all kinds of medications ready and they were completely asymptomatic. We checked the thyroid hormones as if they were going to go up right away <laughs> and then they didn't. And then the next morning we went to see them. And the oncology nurses were like, is this person on the wrong floor? This is the healthiest person <laughs> here. They're in no pain. We should totally send them home. And the pa- I think the patient even asked, like, I, I appreciate it, but I, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. So we, we have not needed to admit any patients after that. And similar to, to the post-protocol that Jawad mentions, we, we do lab follow-up at day seven, which is approximately when we found that most of the thyroid hormone 
peaks occur around day seven, at least that's with our patients who are getting Decadron during the procedure, as well as the Medrol dose pack. But I have a very open line of communication and I will personally often reach them because it's important to do so. I'll personally reach them on days one, two, and three, just to make sure they're not having palpitations. And if they are ready with metoprolol as needed for those patients and making sure that they can reach us as well, if that were to occur, then typically by day 30, their hormone levels go back down and we document that. We will do a telephone call at two weeks and we'll follow up with the patient when their lab values go down. And if their symptoms haven't improved, then in the following months, we may consider doing a second round of embolization. Do you get any imaging during this period? We haven't really gotten a lot of imaging until the three to six month mark because we know that there isn't going to be a dramatic decrease in size. But what's odd is, and and I know... Ravi Srinivasa from UCLA mentioned this in one of his talks. And Jawad, I'm interested if you've seen this too. You know, patients with these massive goiters, tremendous flow, you do the embolization, they're in recovery, and they somehow say that they can feel some improvement already. And no time has changed. You're immediately post-procedure. I don't, I don't know if that's some kind of a placebo effect, but when Ravi explained that in one of his talks, I've seen it once or twice, and it's quite interesting. So Some patients may start getting relief within that period, but we don't necessarily need to document that on imaging because what we're chasing is a clinical endpoint. We'll typically get imaging if we need to plan a repeat procedure to target where that embolization is going to occur, especially if we treated only one artery. Yeah, I've seen some pre and post pictures uh, that Ravi shared of his patient with the really, really large goiter that got better, you know, hours to days after. And uh, unfortunately, I haven't seen such dramatic results in my, my practice so far. But that's why I'm getting the imaging at two months because I want to see, I want to kind of track uh, the decrease in size uh, by CT or ultrasound, um, hopefully for future retrospective review uh, to, you know, gauge when these patients start getting decreased and at what rate, right? What's the delta here? All right. I think that gives us a pretty good overview. You know, this is exciting. You know, it's another, you know, novel and interesting procedure on the horizon. And and I look forward to you know, hopefully seeing some more data soon. But, you know, I, I think you guys gave um, the listeners and myself included, you know, a, a good way to get started. And so, you know, hopefully we'll start to see more of this in the coming years. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us on. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Greatly appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. And uh, I look forward to, to talking with you guys more about this topic. And for everyone that's listening, you know, I, uh, I'm definitely uh, interested in being a resource And if people are interested in this topic and would like to reach out, please feel free. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-host Chris Beck. Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.